The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome, Welcome. to Data Welcome. Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be, bold, be brave, be and be brave. fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Data Gurus. This is Seema Vasa. I think all of the listeners are going to really enjoy this episode. And I wouldn't even say enjoy. I think it challenges our thinking a bit. My conversation with Dr. Emanuel Probst is really about taking a very different view about marketing to consumers. And that is to not look at how many people deliver ads to or what types of promotions do I need to have to be able to hit my you know, quarterly, monthly goals, but really taking a step back and looking at consumers, understanding what their most basic needs are at a very elemental level and having brands think about how their product services, their overall brand messaging can meet the needs of consumers at that level. It's incredibly refreshing, and I think it's really good food for thought for all of us to think about. Take a listen. I am lucky to be joined by Dr. Emmanuel Probst, who is the author of Brand Hacks, How to Build Brands by Fulfilling the Human Quest for Meaning. The book is widely acclaimed by the likes of Matt Brighton, who is the CEO of Susie, and Jeffrey Colon, who's the head of brand studio at Microsoft Advertising. Emmanuel is also the SVP of Ipsos, brand health tracking, and focuses specifically on the technology sector. Welcome, Emmanuel. Shima, thank you for having me on the show today. I really appreciate it. I could not be more happier that you're here. I love this topic. I think it's very relevant, and I look forward to talking more about it. So let's get into it. Let's just talk a little bit about your background in terms of how you eventually got to write this book, because something specifically must have inspired you through your experiences. Yeah, thank you, Sima. I've been in market research, and I'm dating myself here, but I've been in the industry for about 15 years. And what is compelling to me is I want to understand why people do what they do. I'm curious about people. I'm curious about consumers. And I'm curious to understand how, as a society, as a group, as a community, we decide what is good and what is not, what brands make sense and what brands don't make sense, what products we buy and what not, what we believe in and what not. So the leitmotif, the backbone of my uh, career is to be curious and to understand why people do what they do. That's how I came to Brand Hacks is I wanted to further this understanding of why people do what they do and put this in a book. I just love the thesis of being curious, right? And understanding consumers. It's a wide, a broad definition, but I absolutely think it's important that we continue to remain curious in research. And, and it is fascinating. I mean, you cite in your book that over $600 billion of advertising is spent to market to consumers. But yet your thesis is that half is wasted and you know, brands really are not sure what the impact is of those dollars. Can you tell us a little bit more about 
why that is? What's your perspective? Absolutely. That's a saying of a American merchant, Wanamaker, a few, what, about 100 years ago now. And Wanamaker used to say, I waste half of my money on advertising. The problem is I don't know which half. So that was back in the day of Marshall Fields and Sears and those type of merchants. So nothing has changed. We still waste a lot of money on advertising, at least half of what is being spent. And why is this? Because a lot of advertising is poorly targeted. But importantly, I think a lot of advertising is tactical, is designed to push sales in the short run or create traffic or to support short-term metrics, short-term goals for brands. But there's nothing sustainable here. There's nothing that's deep and meaningful to consumers. And, you know, that's the risk with programmatic advertising. Can you drive traffic to a website for the next five hours? Absolutely, you can. But are you creating a brand that stands out in the long run, that makes sense to consumers in the long run? No, you don't. So that's the shortcoming that the book Brand Hacks aims to address. So, you know, even your title is, what can I say, is profound, right? You're saying <laughs> how to build brands by fulfilling the human quest for meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't necessarily think of commercialization or business and link it to the human quest for meaning. So what does that specifically mean? Yeah, yeah. No, thank you, Sima. Here's the deal. For years, in the marketing and advertising industry, we have been pushing ads down the throat of consumers, just like you stuff ducks in France, you know, like you, you push the green down their throat. And this is just not working again because you're not creating a sustainable brand. So the point of the book is let's pause, let's take a big step back as advertising, marketing, and market research professionals. Forget about your media spend and all your strategy plans. Let's understand what are consumers, what are people trying to achieve? Because people are not trying to buy more products. People are not seeking more brands. People are not seeking more advertising. What are people trying to do? People are trying to engage in activities that are meaningful to them. People are trying to find meaning from there. Once we understand what meanings people are trying to fulfill, uh, what is meaningful to them, then we can build brands that help fulfill this meaning. So in this way, the approach of the book is very different from other marketing books, whereby instead of pushing advertising down the throat of consumers, we take a step back, understand what they try to achieve, and build brands that help fulfill what they're trying to achieve. I love the mission. I think brands can connect with consumers at a deeper level by understanding this. In the book, you talk about psychographics and micro moments. What specifically are those as you define them in the book? Yeah. For the longest time in marketing, advertising, market research, we've been targeting people based on demographics. And as a reminder for our listeners today, demographics are age, gender, region, educational background, income. And look, those are fine, but they're meaningless. They're just frankly useless unless you're trying to sell a car or a house. So the point I'm making is if you want to buy a $5.50 venti latte from Starbucks, whether you earn $20,000 a year or $200,000 a year or $2 million is not relevant. What's relevant is do you want to be part of that group? Do you want to be part of that tribe? And 
if you want to engage with the brand, you're going to find $5.50. So psychographics are about your values, your beliefs, what you want to engage in, and micro moments, what you want to do at the moment of truth. So I'll go back to my coffee example. As a brand, if I'm trying to sell coffee to you at 8 in the morning, that's very different from trying to sell coffee at 12 or at 6 p.m., whereby I can potentially sell the same drink, but it has a very different use, whether you want jolt of energy or maybe you want to socialize with your associates at work or maybe you want to wind down at the end of your day. That's what micro moments are about. And I feel back to your initial question, Sima, why do we waste so much money on advertising? Is because advertising is often poorly targeting in terms of the audience, but importantly, in terms of when do we deliver the message? Unless you work night shifts, if I advertise coffee to you at 11.30 at night, it's highly unlikely that you're going to run to the store to buy some. That's right. In some ways, I think the demographic targeting makes it easier from a programmatic perspective versus trying to target on a more nuanced level, such as psychographics or micro moments. It does. You're right. I mean, it's easier to implement, but of course you get what you pay for. That's so true. That is true. (laughs) (laughs) And you might not spend as much money, right? You might actually have higher return on investment. You're right, which is an obsession these days on return on ad spend and return on investment. And rightly so, the days of this industry just, you know, being creative and charging a lot, these days are gone for good. Right. So you talk a lot about consumers. You argue that consumers feel lonelier than ever, even though we live in this connected world of social media and you know, people always say, oh, I can keep touch with my relatives in India or Europe, and I'm, you know, more in contact with people than ever. But your premise is that consumers feel lonelier. Yes, that's one of the key findings from my research is the more connected we are, the lonelier we feel. Now, that's counterintuitive. Yes. But you're right to say, well, technology connects me with my relatives in India, and that's a good thing, right? You have instant, instant access to people, so that's compelling. Conversely, that doesn't help with your close friends, with your close community. So really, the shortcoming is not so much to keep in touch with your aunt at the other, on the other side of the world that works well. It's really to create a community close to you, and our listeners can easily Google this. You have many studies that indicate how millennials and Gen Z, for example, obviously very heavy users of technology and social media, are just the loneliest generation ever. They don't report, 60 plus percent of them don't have a close friend or someone they trust they can confide to. So in that way, the more connected we are, the lonelier we feel. People have lost their ability to create connections in the real world. And in fact, Sima, I'll confide something to you that my therapist tells me that most of the work he does with millennials and Gen Z, with younger generations, is simply to educate them on how to connect with people in the real life because they don't know... How to socialize. Exactly. That's amazing to me, isn't it? It is, indeed. We have to relearn as a society how to communicate with people and... uh, Let's be clear here that I'm guilty of it myself. You know, what's in the book is Mm -hmm. things that I experienced myself. I don't know my neighbors very well. Right. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's interesting. Right. I mean, I live in Los Angeles and I know more about the Kardashians than I do about my next door neighbor. (laughs) (laughs) I know you also have children and it's interesting as we learn more about this, you know, what we do as parents to kind of, we know that this is an issue and, you know, what do we do differently? And I know that's not the purpose of our talk today, but it always is a question in my mind. Like, how do we kind of pull this back a little bit as a society? And what's our responsibility as parents to teach the next generation? You're right. Yeah. And it's not easy because it's pervasive everywhere. Yeah. And that I would welcome your advice on that. <laughs> I can help grow brands, but I can use parental advice. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we all can, actually. <laughs> so you look at, well, let's talk about social media a little bit. I know that, you know, you speak about these influencers, it, probably not in the most positive light, but what's your perspective about social media influencers? Yeah, so initially... Social media influencers, their, their strength is to reduce what we call social distance between them and the audience. So let me explain. With traditional celebrities, you know, we spoke about the Kardashians. We can speak about, I don't know, Madonna, George Clooney, Brad Pitt. Pick any celebrity you want. The shortcoming here as an audience is you might like their work or you might aspire to be like them, but you don't closely relate to them because most of us don't live like George Clooney, Brad Pitt, or Angelina Jolie. So that creates a distance between you and the celebrity. Also, you cannot access these people. Even to this day, it's not like you're going to ping Brad Pitt and he's going to reply to you right after this podcast. And (laughs) in contrast, (laughs) social media influencers initially, at least, so they address this for you, whereby they feel like the guy next door or the girl next door, and they supposedly live like you and you can interact with them. So that's why they're relatable. And that's why from a marketing standpoint, they can be very impactful because they're both trusted celebrities, if you will, and people you can relate to and talk to at the same time. However, over time, Many of them engage with too many brands and brands that didn't really fit them, if you will, that don't really align with their personal profile or values. And also those guys, they become professionals whereby they have crews and people to write content for them and create content for them. And long story short, they're becoming less and less relatable and they're becoming disingenuous. Yeah. And for this reason they are misleading, in my opinion, both their audience and marketers by creating that perception that they're close to their audience and really they're not. Have you seen the impact of social media influencers and the impact on kind of brand equity or brand relatableness? That's probably not a word, but you know what I mean? Like, what's your perspective on that? Has it proven to be effective? So to this day, and I do measurement for a living, it's extremely hard to measure social influencers for a bunch of reasons. Uh, their audiences are small and you have some limitations in terms of how you can access Facebook and YouTube and Instagram and all that. So the short answer is I'm not exactly blown away with social influencers' impact on brand equity or brand health metrics, we'll call them. There's a lot of hype. It makes for a good conversation at conferences. 
I'm not saying there isn't, but there isn't a ton of evidence. Now, the reason why social influencers are doing so well for themselves or where is because they can move products, especially in beauty and fashion. Right. So in other categories, it's harder for them. But we've been told, again, to their credits, if a social influencer speaks about specific makeup or specific store, in all likelihood, that's going to drive traffic. And on the 18 to 35 age brackets, they can move products like nobody else can because they have the eyeballs. Right. Once again, this is a short-term strategy or short-term tactic, I should say, for advertisers. Can you move products this weekend? Yeah, that's one thing. Can you build a brand in the long run? That's the other question. Yeah, I mean, your thesis is really to think about the long term and really building the brand, the brand equity, the brand story and connecting to consumers at a deeper level. And many of the things that you talk about that we're doing today are very short-term focus and kind of driving to meet the financial goals or sales goals for many of the companies. Yes. The reason why we're so short-term focus is twofold. One, because programmatic advertising, the promise is I can target people within the next 30 minutes and experience some return on ad spend within the next 45 minutes. Also, because your C-suite is pressuring you to show return on investment. And of course, we have quarterly calls, right? Nobody wants to talk about return on investment in three years from today. The last reason, in my opinion, that no one wants to talk about is how long are people planning to stay in their employment. The point I'm making is whether you're a junior advertising executive out of college or you're C-level exec, are you planning on staying with your organization for more than two years? Now, nobody wants to discuss that, but the truth is, if your plan is to exit out in six, nine, 12 months, how do you care about brand health and brand equity on a three to five years time frame? And I think that's the dirty secret that nobody wants to talk about. And that's one of the key reasons why people are so obsessed with short-term metrics, because you want to make an impact now, and you don't really care about what's going to happen in the long term, because you won't be around anyway. Yep, I think that's very true. And I think it is something that people don't talk about. You know, even as in your role, my role, like servicing clients, you can see the churn, right? People move seats all the time. And so, and also it's kind of like, I need to get a win before I go, be able to, you know, move to the next job, maybe at a higher level. So who do you think is doing this today? Who could you point to? Which brands can you point to to say, you know, I really understand what consumers want and kind of their quest for meeting and they're connecting their brands to that. Yeah. So I think an interesting brand here is Airbnb, for example. So to get back to where we started this conversation, Sima, around meaning, and Airbnb is a good example and here's why. If we think about Marriott and Hilton and these companies, they sell hotel rooms and you don't have a lot. I mean, I'm a big Marriott client myself, but the truth is you don't have a lot of differentiation. And what can you expect? You have a clean room and a good location, but that's about it. In contrast, Airbnb doesn't sell accommodation. I mean, of course they do, but that's not the point. Airbnb fulfills your quest for adventure and discovery. 
the selling point of Airbnb is not so much to put chocolates on your pillow. There's nothing wrong with that. But the point is to help you discover something new, new and help you venture off the beaten path in a safe environment. So it's just adventurous enough, meaning there's a sense of adventure because you're going to discover something new. But look, your payment is processed by Airbnb and your host is vetted by Airbnb and you can see the ratings and it's reassuring. In that way, Airbnb fulfills that quest for meaning of something adventurous and of discovering new things. In contrast, Marriott and Hilton, they provide you with points and with a clean hotel room. And is that the quest for better and efficient business travel? I'm just joking. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. I like it. (laughs) All right. Let's talk about authenticity. I feel like we've used this word a lot in the last couple of years, being authentic. And what does that mean? You look at it and say imperfect is perfect in your book. What do you mean by that? Yeah, you're right. Authenticity is a word that we've used so much in the industry. It's very ill-defined. So imperfect is perfect means people, I was going to say consumers, but people are done with staging and too much makeup and too much Photoshop and things that are too perfect. Once again, because people know that real life doesn't look like this. It's not relatable. And, you know, an example we can reflect on from like two weeks ago, Victoria's Secret, they canceled their show, their very famous show, just not relatable. And Victoria's Secret is one of the many brands that is suffering right now from projecting an image that is just not how our society is. So imperfect is perfect means nobody or hardly anybody looks like a Victoria's Secret angel and People have flaws and they don't have perfect skin and they don't necessarily have the perfect body shape and all that. And that's completely fine. Imperfect is perfect means we want to see in brands, in products, in ads, real people. And just spoke about Victoria's Secret and how they're taking a big hit right now. And in contrast, you see in very crowded markets, underwear and lingerie, you see some brands like Airy and that brand is Spending right now, they're opening more stores because their model is literally the girl next door. And that's terminology, not mine. But it's to use little to no Photoshop, real models from real life and market to real people. A few years ago, Dove in beauty, personal care was very, very successful with a similar campaign of putting on stage, if you will, putting in their ads, real people. You know, it's interesting that you say that because that Dove campaign, I don't remember many campaigns, but I remember that one. You're right. And those are the campaigns we remember. Interestingly, you might remember a campaign for Always that was called Like a Girl, which is another example of a very authentic campaign. But anyway. I do remember that one. Yeah. Yeah. We remember out of the millions of ads we've been exposed to over the last few years, a few stand out. And interestingly... These are the ones that are the most authentic and relatable and where there is no sense of perfection. Those three campaigns you and I just covered, Dove, Always, these are not perfect per se. And by the way, they don't have the biggest budget. Right. So let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about brand tracking, brand health tracking. And, you know, in our industry, 
you know, obviously these are important metrics, KPIs to understand how your brand is doing relative to competitor brands. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, will the existing models of how we collect and report this data continue forward? And will it be replaced by other models such as potential social intelligence or, you know, kind of a more stitched together data sets to create new KPIs? What's your perspective on that? Yeah, for too long, the market research industry has been relying mostly on surveys, I should say almost exclusively on surveys, to ask people, how do you feel about Nike versus Under Armour and Adidas? The shortcomings are obvious. Number one, that's only self-reported data. And sometimes people don't mean to lie in surveys, but they just don't know themselves how they feel. Number two, you always work in hindsight, meaning what did you think about Nike's campaign for Black Friday. Well, you know, it's early December now, so that's no longer relevant. And number three is just one data set. So no matter how many survey completes you have and how many data points you have, well, that's just one source of data. So these are all the shortcomings that, to address your question precisely, and I'll be very candid, solution number one, some people in the industry will keep doing exactly this and they will go away. Solution number two, we evolve the model, and I would argue that market research is more relevant than ever. Here's how to evolve the model. One, let's not rely only on surveys. Bring other data sets to the table. Social media listening, news, search, basket data, first-party data, third-party data, and bring all this to the table just like a potluck. Connect this data. And that provides you with a much fuller understanding of your audience and much more granular understanding of your audience. The second thing that this industry needs to do is stop creating those decks with 70 slides full of data tables <laughs> that are a nice source for just about everyone unless you're a complete nerd from market research who's been in the industry for 20 years. People, our clients, at all levels, they want clear communication with graphics or one-pager, sometimes things that they can read on their cell phone. It has to be clear, straight to the point, concise, actionable. The third thing that we can do, and allow me to plug Ipsos here, but the type of things I do with my clients at Ipsos is we don't want to just measure. Yeah, we do that for you, but we want to help you predict and optimize. And what this means is, of course, I can measure Black Friday for you. And we do, and we will. Most importantly, I want to use all these great data sets that we just covered to counsel your brand on what to do early 2020, mid 2020, and help you predict how the general election, as an example, of our news are likely to impact your brand and how to strategize towards this. If we do this, now, as an industry, we have a good seat at the table, once again, because we demonstrate our impact and we help people predict and strategize in the future, as opposed to just measuring KPIs in the past. Yep. It gives us so much more dimension to the data and it's more actionable by not just looking backwards, but looking forwards as well. Exactly. 
Emmanuel, thank you so much for joining me today. And again, the book that you've written is Brand Hacks, How to Build Brands by Fulfilling the Human Quest for Meaning. And I know I bought my copy at on Amazon. Any place else, Emmanuel, you want to share where your book can be bought? Amazon is a good place and bookstores these days for business books is, is not really a thing, but I will also participate in various conferences over the next few months including but not limited to the Quirks events and South by Southwest and the Advertising Research Foundation in January. So people can find me on LinkedIn at Emmanuel Probst and I'm also on Instagram at Real French Boy. That's where all the information is about my upcoming engagements. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sima. I really appreciate it and great conversation today. Thank you again for having me on the show. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. So I love this perspective about talking about planning for long-term versus just focusing on short-term metrics. I wholeheartedly agree with the notion. However, I think fundamentally, it requires a major change in our society because isn't American business short-term focused as it is? I mean, it's the fundamental basis of quote-unquote the American dream, right? Anybody can come here, build a business and rush, rush, rush and achieve their goals. And if you really think about it, at least our American society, it's really driven by personal goals, desires, and our individual egos that drive our day-to-day activities. And from my perspective, and I'm including myself in this as well, you're thinking about those goals and perspectives all the time and trying to achieve those goals. Yeah, sometimes it's a year, sometimes it's a quarter, but it's not over a five, 10-year period because things move so quickly. And I wonder what fundamentally needs to change for us to take a longer term perspective as it relates to businesses and building brands. And when I come down to it, I think it's potentially reshaping what the American dream truly is. And it is about looking at the long term and it is about looking at, you know, looking at consumers as people and what their needs are and to be able to deliver value that really connects to them at a very elemental level. By no means do I want to sound cynical, but structurally and from a value perspective, I think we need to take a hard look at it. Again, I truly believe in the perspective of looking at long-term. However, we have to just take a step, maybe even five steps back and think about what needs to change to be able to do that. Now, I do think there's hope. I think maybe the next generation of leaders, I already feel like we're seeing some of that where they will prioritize other elements of quote-unquote success that allows us to think about the long-term and not always manage to the short-term. Okay, so I will leave you with that. Thank you for joining in and listening to this week's episode. And until we meet again, peace out. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.datagurusspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. Exclusively. That's www.datagurusspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.